welcome to uh, the Centre for African Studies seminar tonight. Uh, I'm really happy to be introducing the speaker, Dr. Serafin Kamdem. Is it Kamdem or Kamdem? Kamdem. Kamdem. Um, who is going to be speaking on the English Everywhere Agenda in Education in a highly multilingual Cameroon towards a recipe for disaster. Not there yet, but heading for the disaster. Uh, Dr. Kamdem holds a PhD from SOAS, University of London, and he has studied at the University of Yaoundé in Cameroon, the University of East Anglia uh, in Norwich, and the University of North Dakota in the US, and has taught a range of courses um, at a number of universities, uh, including at SOAS, where he's currently senior teaching fellow and convenes three courses, English in the Global World, Issues in World Englishes, and uh, understanding Africa past and present. And he says that he wants to use the time as much as possible, so I'm going to stop right there, let him speak, and you say you want to speak for about 45 minutes, maybe a bit more. Yeah. So I'm going to be a bit lenient at the wrapping up. But thank you very much, and we get to hear what you say. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank the CAS, the Center for African Studies, for giving me a chance to give this seminar. It's the second time I'm talking within the CAS Africa Seminar Series, so it's a privilege to be invited again and to be here again. I want to thank Carly for accepting to chair this. Uh, I want to thank Anna, the Executive Officer of CAS, who has really been very helpful in putting this together and Angelica Basquera, who is the manager of CAS and who also has been very supportive. Um, I want to thank you for coming. I know it's really busy. Uh, some of you are my students in the BA English, but a lot of you have just come to support me and also hear about this interesting topic. So I'm going to go on. I want to first uh, you know, apologize for two things. Some of you will find that there's too much material in the slides as we are going to go along. I'm sorry for that, but I am not good at having my notes separate and then having less stuff. I just read with you. So the advantage of my approach is that we will read together whatever is on the slides instead of just having a title and then I'm reading through something. That's the thing. The second reason is that this is research in progress. So a lot of the elements, I've taken them as they are, especially those aspects of what's happening with the English Everywhere agenda in Cameroon. So that's one of the reasons why we are going to have to cover a lot. The third reason why uh, there is so much to cover is I, I just wanted those of you, especially some of my students, to actually have a picture, a bigger picture of everything that I know on this, because I'm still working on this paper. But, you know, you'll keep in touch and then I'll send you the version when it's really near publication. So I'm working on it now. So I've put in italics the concept, the whole sort of concept, English Everywhere Agenda. It's a word which is very peculiar, as we'll see throughout the slide. So it's not a common thing when we talk about English Everywhere Agenda in Cameroon. And I'll go back to why I call it an agenda. Because even though it's literally 15 years, it still seems to be like something that's 
you know, in progress. It's sort of more of a plan. The things that are happening are unfolding in a way that's really not clear how it's even been planned. So um, that's Cameroon, very briefly. I mean, just to tell you where that's Cameroon, right in the bite of Boni or bite of Biafra. So it's in the heart of Cameroon, but this is the country, just to give a rough idea, okay? Now, um, I'll give you an overview of the country very briefly. Now, that's the population that we have roughly today from the World Bank sources. And I'm pointing out this because it's going to become interesting when we are going to look at what I call the sort of ratio of the population to the number of languages. So we have like 2% of Africa's total, <coughs> around the sort of 1 billion plus that Africa has today. So that's really small. It's not one of these biggies in terms of population. You have in Cameroon a diverse and multilingual population made up of what I call 250 peoples. And I will not go too much into those anthropological concepts. And even though we talk of, you know, massive, what we call tribal diversity, you can actually roughly regroup all of these people under five major regional and cultural groups. I've done that in another paper. But again, this is regional and cultural. So it's just to say that there's diversity, but people really share a lot in common. So it's a very diverse country. The area is that, that we inherited from colonization when we got the independence. And again, as you can see, I've put this percentage just to give you a rough idea in comparison with the Africa's total in terms of land, land area. Now, we have in Cameroon 10 regions. They have been called for a long time provinces. They are roughly the equivalent of what you would consider maybe a county here or a state in Federal Republic. So, but Cameroon is not a Federal Republic as, as such. So that's just to give you a rough picture of what Cameroon is in terms of you know, very general information. Now I'm going to push into languages in Cameroon. We have 286 local languages. Again, there was a meeting with the said Otola some years back, when I was collecting information on this, a colleague from the ministry told me, we've seen that number a bit down, but we are still somewhere around 250 plus. So it's not like really, these numbers are closer to what we know from ethnologue more than 20 years back. Now again, now we see the percentage compared to the number of languages in Africa, around the 2,000 plus that we estimate that we have in Africa as languages. So, you see the relationship between that percentage in terms of population and that one in terms of linguistic diversity already. Now, if you look at the general sort of multilingual landscape of Cameroon today, you have French and English, which are the official <coughs> languages. I'll come back to that again later on. You have also, if you go deeper into the education system, German and Spanish a com compulsory subject in the francophone secondary school from my days. And the system has in that those languages are still present. Now, there's something interesting that they are compulsory subjects. So actually, you can't go through the system without choosing one of those two. So this is something that you can't escape. It's not like optional. Again, that's the school system. I'm just giving what we call descriptive information. We have Campigin. Some scholars call it Camtor which is actually the closer name. But in 
the whole theory of what we know today as World English is Tam Pidgin is the word that also is used. But Tam Tau is also the name for what is a lingua franca, but actually a language of wider communication in generally the Grand South of the country. So if we go back here, that covers most of the area, if you call what is known as the Adamawa province or region, most of this Grand South, people will be very, you know, using the pigeon with clear pockets in the Anglophone areas, the, you know, the Northwest and Southwest, you see that these are clear regions where this language are almost used natively by children, especially in rural areas who are no longer in the villages. And clearly also all along the coasts, all throughout Equatorial Guinea, there are varieties of the uh, camp pigeon, and then there's a lot of research happening in how camp pigeon is evolving today in Cameroon. But it's a language of wider communication, so used as a lingua franca. We have Arabic used in the um, Grand North, but not just in the Grand North. In almost every city in the South, you have what is North a Hausa quarters. That is this, these areas where you have people who come from the Grand North who have settled there, who tend to be associated with the name Hausa, but it's actually people who are from the north who generally tend to share the Muslim faith. That's one of the elements. So you have in those sort of pockets, even in the city, even in Yaoundé, the capital, even in a place as far as towards the south, you have those areas where you would see some use of Arabic, especially in the school, Quranic school of or religious purposes. And there's this emergence, the emergence of what's not a camfranglais. Okay, there's other names. So camfranglais is what could not be equated really with sheng, but it's close, some in the sense that it's some sort of an urban and school youth sociolect. So again, these are things that are still being studied in terms of how are they evolving, not just in terms of their what we call sociolinguistic function, but what are they really when you look at what we call linguists, we call structural characteristics. So again, it's a mix of local languages, some French and some English, which actually is some Pidgin English historically. But it's really becoming important because the youth are it's really expanding. So that's just to roughly, very roughly give you a picture of um, the multilingual landscape of Cameroon. Most linguists will consider Cameroon as a linguistic paradise, and there's a reason for that. Three of the four main linguistic phala, phala just means big family, okay, of African languages are represented in Cameroon. You generally have Afro-Asiatic were represented, Nalo-Saharan were represented, and Niger Cordofanian, which again some linguists equate with Niger Congo, and that's the largest family. That is that's where you have a lot of the Bantu languages. So the only phylum of African languages that you do not have in Cameroon is Khoisan. Okay, which again just to explain why linguists will consider Cameroon as a paradise because you have all of this <coughs> diversity. Now I go back to the population. In 1960, that was 5 million something, okay? But today, you know, it's more than quadrupled, roughly, 2013. Now, but this number of languages is roughly the number that you had, you know, 50 years back. So that's why we have in Cameroon the highest population languages ratio in Africa. So it's not about just the number of languages, the population when you ratio, because Nigeria has more languages. 
but then Nigeria has literally eight times the population of Cameroon. So that's a very different thing. Nigeria definitely has more language than Cameroon. But then we talk of 100 and almost 80 million today by the same sources. So that's to show you the high level of linguistic diversity that we have in Cameroon. Again, that's along the line of linguists considering Cameroon as a linguistic paradise. Now, I'm going to jump straight into English in Cameroon. English in Cameroon is a colonial linguistic legacy. The Congress of Berlin in 1884 started what is known as the first scramble for Africa because some other scholars are saying there's a second scramble for Africa. It's China and a number of, because China has created a renewed type of interests, you know, in trying to get everything that anybody can get from Africa. So there was the first scramble, but at the time, you know, in 1884, there was mainly the European empire establishing colonies in Africa. Now, even the US was at the Berlin Congress, so they signed the treaty. So they didn't get like colonies, but they actually were part of the sort of decision. So that's something that some historians tend to forget, that the US were at this Congress also. English came, therefore, with the British missionaries and colonization. And the arrival of English in Cameroon is, therefore, generally part of what Jenkins, Jennifer Jenkins, who is one of the world authorities on world English, is uh, called the second dispersal. Okay, the first dispersal is what produced the inner circle countries. That is, the countries where English is spoken natively by the majority of population. We're talking US, you know, Australia. Canada, New Zealand. So that's the first dispersal. The second dispersal is where there were mainly colonies with the majority of population speaking another language, not English, even though English has become really present in all the things. So that's India, Cameroon, and all of those colonies in Africa and Asia. So that's what Jenkins called the second dispersal. So Cameroon is definitely part of that. And because of that, Studies on Englishes in Cameroon are framed within the outer circle of Braj Kashro. So just to position Cameroonian Englishes. But again, that's something else, because I'm talking about the English that is used in education. So there's a debate about what are we talking about here. Are we talking of the Cameroonian English as a local variety or standard Cameroonian English, which somehow is analyzed by some as just you know, a Cameroonian variety of British English. That's the standard that's taught in school. So there's a lot of debate there. So my statement here are just somehow simplifying a picture which is actually complex. So um, even though English found in Cameroon this formidable level of multilingualism, it has managed over the decades to actually become part and parcel of local linguistic practices and I'll focus on English in education. So that's one aspect of, we have the incredible multilingualism of Cameroon, which we have. But English still, you know, it's at the forefront when it comes to education. And that's something that, again, it's difficult to explain, even though we know how that happened. Now, um, so when I look briefly at all of the factors and consequences of 
English arrived in Cameroon. Um, it is clear that we can see how English has become so important in, you know, sort of the, the sort of linguistic practices. English is one of the two official languages of Cameroon, alongside French. So that's the only two official languages that we have. Even though I've started by showing you that we have these really century old languages that were there pre-colonially. These languages were there, but today we only have English and French as the two official languages. And English is now used in education all over the country. And then, you know, that's one of the main things that I'm going to be discussing in detail. Um, now, I am mentioning this just to again go into the complex picture of the situation of English in Cameroon. Um, I've done some work on what we call the post-colonial ideology behind language policies and as it applies to English and I gave a presentation. So I'm pointing this so that the English everywhere agenda is envisioned into this sort of larger network of sort of complex issues. So what I'm saying is that the local dynamics surrounding English in Cameroon is complex and it's multi-tiered. So you have different levels where you have to look to try to understand what's going on. There are various forces in play. There are conflicting stakeholders. And there's a multi-layered multi ideological systems. Now, you have the post-colonial linguistic heritage and the ensuing language planning and language in education policy. Which language do you choose to teach in school? This is a heritage of colonization. English is inside that sort of network, you know. Then you have the local political elites as an ideological and sociopolitical constituency who have developed discourses of social justice and education for all following the Yom Tien conference about giving the possibility to everybody to have basic education. But the agenda of education for all in the case of Cameroon is vested in official languages. Again, that brings us back to French and English. You have the nation-building vision, which is clearly a political agenda, with the necessary linguistic unity. So the nation vision said, okay, we want to build a nation, okay, the Cameroonian nation, but then we need to have some linguistic unity. And then because Cameroon went through a phase of being a federal state, it became a big thing that we needed a unitary state. So that's the history in terms of the vision of the nation building, which is ideological. But that vision of the nation building, again, became embedded. I use the word embedded carefully because I wanted to use the term trapped in an official bilingual vision of the nation. So that's what happened when the first president decided to build Cameroon following all of the 60s with the fight for find some unity because we had our brothers and sisters who came from the... Cameroons, the British Cameroons, and who had joined us. So there was that vision that, oh, we need to take into account English and French. But there is today an ongoing clash of linguistic and ethnic identities. Now, that's the background. I'm not going to talk about this today, but I want you to see that there's a connection with all of these things and that they are also playing in the sort of the reasons behind why we have an English Everywhere agenda so strong in Cameroon today. Now, I want to also point out something important, <coughs> and the reason I'm citing Tadaji is because he is 
one of the you know, outstanding authorities in language planning in Sub-Saharan Africa. He's Cameroonian. He was a professor. He did a lot for African languages in general and Cameroonian languages. He was the first, I think, Sub-Saharan uh, researcher and linguist and professor and academic to win the Lingua Pass Prize, to my knowledge. I don't think anybody I won that before him. It was in recognition of his contribution to research on language planning and multilingualism in Africa. Now, Tadadjo's position was that the general goal of African education planning is to ensure that young people completing primary school adequately fit into their society. The purpose of language planning should be to help educational authority adopt, plan, and successfully implement those policies and programs that best prepare specific groups, student or working adult, to use language skills, again, language skills, properly in specific languages for societal functions. That was a core vision about what language planning uh, should do in the society. That was Tadadjo's sort of position. He, 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 it was published in Le Défi de Babel, but he had actually already presented this from 78, when he published something through the UNESCO about language planning in Africa. So just to sum up what I have here is that you would expect that with these visionary uh, academics who were there, who were Cameroonian, who were back working in Cameroon, You'd expect that with 286 local languages in Cameroon, you know, living languages used by the majority of the population, that then in the education system, there should be some serious consideration given to local languages, and that at least some effort <coughs> is done by those who are in power. We are talking of a sovereign nation to actually bring in some of the local languages into the education system. It's not the case. Now, that's a problem because we need to try to ask ourselves the question, why is it that if language planning should be trying to develop the skills and the capacity of children, like everywhere in the world, why is it that in the case of Cameroon we never had the possibility to see that languages in education should actually also take into account the local languages? Now, let me talk briefly about what I call before the English Everywhere Agenda. What was the situation of English? Now, the English Everywhere Agenda is a very specific concept that I'm using. It's not talking about Cameroon in general or overall. It's talking about the specific of the, Anglo, the, the Francophone provinces. Eight out of the provinces are... Okay, if we look here, you see that only the northwest and the southwest, these two provinces here, are actually, you know, what we got from the British Cameroon. The large majority of Cameroon is officially French-speaking. So from the far north, the north province, the Adamawa, the center, the south, the littoral province, and the large east province, which is a deep equatorial rainforest area, they are all francophone in terms of you know the official language so that's the the english everywhere agenda is looking at what's happening with english in the education system in the 
uh, francophone provinces which represent the majority of Cameroon, where normally we've been having French since the colonial time in the education. Now, what happened with English then before what I call the English Everywhere Agenda? Now, uh, just to summarize this slide, until the mid, I'll jump to the second part, until the mid-90s, okay, so we inherited French and English, and then they were used in the education, but specifically until the mid-90s, English in the Francophone provinces was taught as a compulsory subject only in the secondary schools. So you would have English as a subject only from when you leave the primary, okay? From what is known as CZM, which is roughly that the equivalent of Form 1. You know, like when you finish primary, then you start around 10, 11 for the youngest, 11, but even 15, you know. But the teaching of English was done by trained teachers. Now, trained, I should have put that in italics. But at least, there were two main routes to get into the profession of English teacher. You really needed to have a qualification of a degree taught in English. So a lot of them at least had, had some education using the English language. Not really necessarily a degree in English teaching, but you could even be a math you know, could have a bachelor in math, then you end up teaching English in the Francophone. That was fine enough because you had at least some knowledge of the language, in just in terms of a qualification or a degree. Or, actually, for those who were civil servants, which at the time was a lot of the people teaching English in a lot of the Francophone sort of secondary schools, what you call the CES, Collège d'Enseignement Secondaire, or high school, lycée, they were actually from the higher teacher training colleges, which are known as École Normale, run by the Ministry of Education. So the vast majority of those who were teaching English in all of these you know, secondary schools were actually trained somehow. They had some knowledge and degree and qualification to teach English. That's roughly what was the picture until sort of the late 90s. So we had this sort of picture until the late 90s. I'm just focusing on English because this table is extracted from some work that I did somewhere else. So we see that we have, we would have English from CZM. I'm focusing on the Francophone system there. Forget about the Anglophone system. That's where we are in this table. I use this table because the Francophone system will have English F from CZM. So that's the age. The age is, you know, you could still get there even at 15 or even more. But the youngest were around 11 for those who really didn't repeat any class and started around the age of five. So you would have English in CZM as a subject, okay, taught as compulsory subject, okay. But then you would still have French as the medium of instruction. So F, French, English will be a compulsory subject. So you had that sort of picture, just focusing on English. I don't even want to go into why we have German and Spanish. That's something that's really not. So you had that as a subject, and you had somebody who is trained, then you go and you learn English with somebody who knows a bit how to teach English. There's a book, you know, there's a <coughs> manual that is specifically for that subject. So that was the picture, roughly, in the Francophone provinces. Now, where do we start seeing what I call the English Everywhere Agenda? In 1996, we had the new constitution of Cameroon. French and English 
as official language of equal value. There was something else that came through there, but this equal value started having some sort of political connotation. Why are we bringing that in the Constitution of 96 and saying they are of equal value? Because this is again a political sort of discourse. But the Constitution of 96 did something which a lot of people found as being uh, the first time that, I mean, it was really important. It says that the state will promote, will protect and promote local language and, as part of what is known as national linguistic heritage. Now, that's another debate. I'm not going into that, but at least they mentioned that they would protect. And there's no issue about, they don't mention value of local language. <coughs> now, in 1998, there is this law, 98 stroke to 005 or 40, which actually is a law on the orientation of the education system. Okay, so it lays the foundation of what was known as the totally new. This comes actually from something before, but I'm just trying not to go back too far because there was a national sort of a national forum on education back in the 90s, which actually laid the foundation especially to this law. But this is what is the law. So that's the most, the national forum was consultative. It didn't have the mandate to actually, you know, uh, what we call a sort of legislative mandate or, you know, but the law came. This is the law signed, and then it was written. Really so the law called for the overall teaching of official languages somehow. And then it turned, it led somehow to this generalization of English teaching in Francophone provinces, which is something that still it's not very clear. But somehow, the sort of document that the minister used in reference to the decision of having a decree saying that uh, you know English must be taught in all of the Francophone cities is sort of the law which actually was giving English and French the equal value as language that must be taught all over. And then you see why even one uh, of the people from which I collected data for this presentation said something extremely strong. But he mentioned that you know there's a political agenda and that there was not enough, you know, thinking through a number of things. So in nineteen ninety nine the official program for primary education from the Ministry of Education, which is a document that is produced at the Ministry, it's mainly used to guide all of the practitioners, the managers, to know exactly what is supposed to be happening in the classrooms. Okay, so it's a document which is had that sort of official. It's a reference document. So the one in 1999, when they are talking of the. Um, courses that you need to have in what is known as the ENIEC. ENIEC means Ecole Normale des Institutions de l'Enseignement Général. It's um, the training college. That's the college where they actually train primary school teachers. Okay, So that's when English actually became one of the courses in the training program. So you couldn't graduate or get out without having had some training in English, not in teaching English, not really but it's just one of the causes. So uh, th th this information is what I've gathered so far. But I wanted actually to be able to trace where is it that this became actually what we call a legal mandate. Because in Cameroon, it's all about is it you doing your thing and you are, is it informal or is there some sort of official document where you have to follow this? Then that becomes the law because you have to do that. If not, everything else doesn't work. So, the National Curriculum for Primary Education, 
through the manual for the pedagogic program for the primary and secondary school, which is a book from the ministry, which is Relieve the Program Scholar, which was published by the Ministry of Education, instituted three sub-disciplines under English. There's English reading, English writing, English language, structure, and speech, okay? There is some pedagogic guidance on the teaching contents, the method, really just some few lines, but it is not really, when you look at it, even when you have to teach one module, you put much more detail. But in the document, there is clearly that this is one of the things, that, and on that, it, you need to learn how to do some <coughs> English reading, some English writing, some English structure and speech, and some aspect of assessment <laughs> and evaluation, okay? So English becomes, at the time, a compulsory subject for primary school, starting right from kindergarten. That's the sort of the way it unfolds. So, oh, you go to the, because we are in this manual, this is no longer just, this is how, the kinds of thing that needs to be taught and taught in school. But when you look through the manual, it's very summary and very insufficient pedagogy information on the teaching planning and outcomes. It didn't tell you exactly, oh, what do you teach, you know, if you have you need to do 40 sessions, no, 25 sessions. You need to do five hours, no, two hours. It doesn't give you that kind of detail. It doesn't give you the sequence of pedagogic sessions like you would do with mathematics in the same sort of manner. It doesn't give you the learning objectives. What are students supposed to know or not know? It doesn't even tell you the content to cover, which literature, what should you read, the material to be used. It doesn't say this is exactly all the manual. That it doesn't really give any clarity even assessment methods are very general, you know. So that's some of the issues that were there in the key document that was giving some orientation on how to teach English in the Francophone school. So this is then the picture that we have roughly around that time, okay? 2000 is not, but it's around that time that the picture changes totally. Even in the pre-primary, roughly you are supposed to now have English as a compulsory subject. Okay, the age of the people will vary, but roughly that's what you have as a picture. This is the francophone system that we are looking at. Um, and you have, you know, the nursery, primary, petit maternel, grand maternel, GM, and then you have that English is there indicated as one of the subjects that you have to teach. Okay, so. The English, I call this decreeing implementation. In other words, you don't go on the field, you do, you learn through trial and error. No. In Cameroon, you decree the implementation. You decide politically that you have to do this. It has to happen. I'm not sure it's, it really works, but we are going to see. So there were massive issues with implementing the English curriculum. And even though some effort were made to teach English from nursery to secondary, the challenges were almost insurmountable, especially in the remote and rural areas. But in a typical bottom-top approach in language planning and educational policies, the Minister of Education, I've just removed the name, but I know exactly who he was, <laughs> on October 14, 2002, decreed and this term is extremely political. It means it becomes the law within that ministerial department. The circular letter 033 B1 1464 Minedic. This IG means, you know, these are all the sub department, and it's on the revamping of bilingualism 
bilingualism in primary and nursery education. Okay? So this decree was clearly to make sure that English, you know, is taught. It says primary and nursery education. Okay? So it's not like they don't know. They are clear that we are not just in primary and nursery education. Now, I didn't have a copy of the text, but by the time I'm writing this paper, I'll try to get a copy, and I'm sure he'll give me one. So there has been a number of other texts, ministerial, secular, later decrees, and official texts, in subsequent years to ensure the implementation of the agenda. So clearly the ministry has been, from the top, insisting that this agenda must be implemented. We are going to see some of the operational issues. Now... The English Everywhere agenda as a recipe for disaster, I keep this as a question. You know, academic discourse is not being final. You need not to be too dogmatic on the things you are saying. So it remains an open question. But I would like now to look at some of the issues and challenges faced by this agenda. Okay? Now, I'm going to talk very roughly of this because this is actually the... In most parts of the world, when English is being taught, there are mainly two models. There's what we call English as a native language model, which is not problematic. If you are teaching English to people or young kids who actually already speak and understand the language perfectly, uh, there's not much that has been debated. Even then, there's the problem of, oh, okay, if I'm from Leeds and you are teaching me RP, or, but that's not the big problem here. The, the big issue is who are the kids in those classes who are expected to be taught English? Who are they? What's their reality? That's what I'm looking at here. Children's first languages, <coughs> L1, that is a language that they know by the age of five, especially in rural areas and also in a lot of the pocket, the working class families in the cities, the first language are local Cameroonian languages. That's the first problem in terms of the challenges when you have an agenda of English language teaching anywhere. What's the first language of the children when they come to the class? So a lot of them will not actually be fluent even in French, the official language in the Francophone area. And if you're in a rural area, trust me, that's actually even, you know, not, even in the cities, a lot of children tend to interact first in a local language. In very rich families, you know, the elite, some of these children will really start at a very early age to be speaking French. But the majority of children in the villages, they start their education, they start their life speaking one of the local languages. That's one of the issues. The classroom realities is also that the language of instruction, even before the English Everywhere agenda, which is, let's say, French, if you are, let's say, in Bangante somewhere, then you're teaching French. You're using French as language of instruction, L-O-I. But then, this is not the first language of the children in the class. So there's already a class there that a teacher may actually be very fluent in French because of his or her education, but it doesn't mean that the child is sharing that language with the same level of fluency or proficiency. So there's that problem. And then, in some cases, you have then the official language, which generally is French or English. So there's already the problem that in a lot of classes, 
teachers are good maybe in the official language because of the education but they are dealing with children at least a good number of them or maybe the majority do not know the language to the same level and then again in rural areas this is very very striking and it's a reality that's there so we have the linguistic background of a lot of the children a lot of them have an Afro-Cameroonian language and some of them in the case of uh, families from different anywhere, parents from children may actually be good at two local languages. So there's always a picture of at least bilingualism and generally multilingualism. And somehow the local, the, 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 the official language of the area will, up, will only creep in later on, and generally through education, because a lot of the parents do not have... So we have this picture of multilingualism, which is the reality of these children, and then Something like the English Everywhere Agenda does not necessarily take into account that. And we are going to see why then that leads to a lot of issues. So there's the problem of this linguistic proficiency that I've just really summarized because it's far more complex. And the effective learning of children. How? What's happening there? And that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, the problem is not with the parent. The problem is not with the teacher. The problem is with the policymaker who says you must start to do this. They must make sure, and that's what I'll explain in the final slide, that this is workable and that is feasible. So I've mentioned this, people, their language profile and local social linguistic reality very roughly. Now, the other aspect is that there is this sort of um, consensus that families must play a key role in the education of children. So it is generally uh, expected that the family should be one of the partners in education. You have the schools, the school system, you have the community, but the family is also one of the partners in education. So any sort of innovation in education, any sort of change that is brought must try to cater for that. There's some sort of holy trinity in education, I mean, to be successful where the family must play their part, the community plays their part, and then the school come there to make that the educational system is functional and successful. So parents and community have complementary role in their participation in children's education. The parents are the ones making the choices about the school, the choices about the type of system. This is in an ideal system. And they do contribute because they are the people paying for education. They are the people making sure that children actually even go to school. And um, they should also then in turn support their children. Now, there was already a problem in the Cameroonian context that the exclusive use of official language in education prevents most families with illiterate or uneducated parents, which again is the big bug, especially in rural areas. We can debate about the cities, but then the cities do not represent the majority. And even the picture in the city, there's been research to explain that this vision where urban area means everybody there may be speaking of. It's not actually true. We have had what we call, actually Cameroon was used right in the 80s for what they call a sociolinguistic survey of urban centers. And the picture was absolutely incredible. You have exactly the same sort of division as you will see in the rural area. So Yaoundé is not a place where everybody is speaking French, not at all. If you go to Cartier, I will suggest to give an example. There is more of full full day spoken there than you would even find even in some parts of the farm. Just to tell you that the, even the urban area 
are not some sort of place where you have you know official languages or everybody knowing to read and write no on the contrary so that's the problem so already using official languages was already excluding parents from contributing to education the english everywhere agenda has only exacerbated that situation so there is a further prevention from parents to try their little to contribute to children's education that's just one of the issues. There are more issues. Now, there is this problem of teacher training and inadequate skills in teaching and handling English. So that's a problem. Not enough primary school teachers are trained or hired in general in Cameroon. This is the case for the whole education system. So it is difficult when it comes to finding primary school teachers with basic knowledge of English, not to talk of academic expertise in the subject. Now, um, and let's remember that English became a subject in the ENIESH, that is the training school, only from the early 2000s, so, or so roughly, where actually you couldn't get out of the ENIESH without having some sort of, you know, having done a course in English. But it is estimated, now I will check this estimate, but looking at the overall picture, that teacher from the ENIESH do not represent even 20% of all teachers actually in the primary school system. I'll check that. But when you look at the fact that almost in a lot of the uh, primary schools, many teachers are not even from the NEX. So a lot of the teachers are, you know, hired locally. There are people who have never gone to a training school. That's mainly in the primary school and almost in, you know, the kindergartens. So there's a real issue that, that even though you will say, oh, they train half English, but really, does it, um, you do not have, any policy. So a serious problem is that the English Everywhere Agenda was decreed to be implemented almost instantaneously. <coughs> that is, a decree must be applied. That's what the law is. If there's a ministerial decree, it means everything after the decree should follow that, even though there's some provision to say, okay, if the conditions are there, but the law is that you can't go back. So somehow there's a problem. The problem is that Everywhere in the country, because it was mandated at the ministerial decree, most francophone primary school teachers who were already struggling with French were and are still today, and some of them with no training are expected or asked to also teach English as a subject without any prior training or training program in the subject. So in the case of the schools where I went, the same teacher who already had a lot of problems with French had English added as a new subject that had to be taught in class. There was no retraining, there's no planned retraining, not in the very remote area. So they, they just added English. So we are not saying like, oh, there was the English area agenda, then the trained teachers came out now knowing some English, and then they were deployed in all of those areas to teach it. No, the same old part that I found somewhere, you know, in the mountains in the West, said that now we have to teach English even to kindergarten. The same person who already had to use the local language to actually be able to teach um, the children. So that's the problem that this agenda had right when it was being implemented. So, of course, there's a lot of pedagogic material and literature for schools. Okay? It's clear that when you look at, there's not what you call an English-Primish environment, 
for effective teaching. There are not enough books and literature in classrooms in English for that topic. There's no, you don't even have, sometimes you use newspapers, you know, at the adapter here, you cut some of them, you use them, if you have them really locally. But in a lot of rural areas, you do not have so much written literature in the community in English that can then be used by the teacher, provided the teacher have actually been trained to develop what we call, you know, what we call teachers, develop material where you get trained to use what you find in your environment to actually use all that as pedagogic aids. So that's one problem. So this is a direct consequence of inadequate allocation of material, but also it has to do with the local environment we do not have the English. So again, it's a complex thing and again I'll, I'm still working on a lot of this. Now, um, there has been inadequate allocation of resources, just repeating that one to implement the agenda. No proper need analysis was done. I mean, some may have been done, but it is not well documented that this is what we did. This is the need analysis, this is what we got out, and then this is just trickling down. That's why we are making this decision. And no, or very insufficient. Again, I will cross-check this information, but I've been speaking with colleagues in the ministry who were actually behind this agenda. So I am really at the source, and I'm just going to check what happened from my end, because I'm still talking with them. There was not enough information gathered on operational feasibility. Now, you can gather any sort of information. Do you like it? You don't know. But the operational feasibility is a key issue. How can we do this? Do we have books in school? Are we having our training programs? No planning in terms of operational phases. You need to have a time frame with indicator of success. How do I know? How do we know? You know, I know, because we have a common indicator of success. We have to need mechanism for improvement. How do you change? Do we republish another book? Do we organize a retraining? This is all within the theory of project planning, okay? And learning from experience. What are the lessons that we've learned? Generally, you do what we call you know, a trial project. You, you know, start in some schools, then you learn from there to improve. The capacity building generally must also be put in place. That you can learn as you go along, but then you build that as skills that you then share through to strengthen the project. Now, it is not clear that all this was done, because sometimes you may be not planning things well, but if at least you have some capacity building, that you embed in the project as you implement it. That's it. okay, I didn't know that much, but as I'm learning, make sure we document how we are doing this. Then we produce reports from which we then know how to do better. That's possible. You do not need to have already a Bible about how to do things, but you can learn as you go along. But you need to know in advance that I want to learn as I'm going along. So that's, again, I'm talking to colleagues in the ministry who are researchers themselves. They don't have anything like that and they don't know, and they are in the ministry, they are the people who actually work on this, so I'll keep, I'll keep collecting more information. This is why one of the researchers that I've consulted, who himself is an academic teaching at the university, he said that the system de cet anglais tous azimut la effet pour échouer. What it means is that that system of English all guns blazing is designed to fail. It's literally like really all guns blazing because it's like the ministerial decree, this has to be done and you do it and that's what we are where we are going. What he believes is that the system was put up 
haphazardly just to satisfy some political issues. At one point, for whatever reason, there was this desire to make sure that we have English everywhere in the Francophone area. Again, you know, some political issue. What was it? Was it the problem of the divide between Anglophone and Francophone? Or what was it that the education situation? Then I am going to look into this again. Okay, so this is his position on it, and he is one of the people, he's a national inspector, right there. So he's not talking from outside. He is one of those who were behind the minister when all this was happening. Okay, that's why, you know, this is something that I think is solid. And he is a linguist. He's an educational expert. He's published books and he's done his PhD looking at issue of multilingualism in Cameroon. Now, I want to finish with this analysis. The challenge of educational change and innovation in English language teaching. Educational change and innovation is intrinsically a challenge. Just in itself, that is whatever you have been, it is intrinsically. Once you start innovation and change in an education system, it's not going to be easy. It's very rare to see a case where you try it. Once you start the word innovation and change, there are lots of things. Intrinsically, it's a challenge. This is the case in ELT in particular. And especially in ELT when you have other languages in multilingual contexts. Now, in the theory and practice of education, the English everywhere agenda falls within the domain of education, innovation, and change. So there was a system at one point, some changes were brought or innovation. That's where you can look at it from a theoretical standpoint. Now, I look at Hayes and Murray and Christison, who recently did some work and it's published looking at evidence from various English language education programs, and they do identify a number of key issues that are important to be understood and addressed in order to, so if you care for success, you don't care for success, okay? That's different, but I think <laughs> most people who do and it's actually supposed to improve the system or give a So if you want to be successful, you need to really think and take into account. And they have looked at a number of programs, and their book is actually, you know, published by the British Council, so it's actually really in the heart of the whole dynamic of ELT worldwide. And the book contains more than 20 case studies from all parts of the world. So there's really some very, what we call empirical evidence about change and innovation in English language teaching. Now, I wanted to paraphrase Hayes, okay? But then I discovered that all what he is saying is exactly what I was trying to get across. So I've just put him there just to tell you that what he's saying is exactly some of the core issues that we have. Hayes talks of what he calls stakeholder engagement, okay? No matter how sound an innovation might be theoretically, if it does not secure the wholehearted support, wholehearted support of the people who have to transfer it from the theory to practice in the classroom, the chances of successful implementation are very limited. The process of implementation is also long-term and support must be provided to teachers on a continuing basis in a, and in a variety of ways as they come to terms with an innovation. Policy makers who are responsible for innovation must therefore consider three key points. All innovations require the support of those primarily responsible for implementing them, classroom teachers. Teachers must be consulted and their views respected 
Don't consult and ignore. <laughs> consult and respect the view. At all stages of the innovation process, all stages, from initial conception, no teacher in most places where I've discussed this had any idea about where the initial conception of this came. It just came to them in the face. To implementation, and they are the ones to implement. That's where it becomes really... Adequate support must be provided at all stages of the innovation process in the form of in-service training and in-school follow-up to training. Developing professional learning communities amongst teachers is critical to school improvement and time and opportunity for reflection on teaching and sharing practice are central to the development of such communities. In a similar vein, for Murray and Christison in the same publication, the key issues to take into account and to address in order to succeed in innovation and change in English language teaching are teacher knowledge and beliefs. What do they know? What do they believe? You have to take that into account. You need to understand that first and then take it into account. The quality and content of teacher education program. Well, what, what are the educational system for training teacher in Cameroon, and what content do we have there? Print, multimedia, and teacher-developed material. Teachers in the classroom must be able to actually use what they find there to develop material so that they are you know, in tune with how to help the public and political perception of language teaching. If a key inspector who is a PhD holder from the ministry who has been there for 15 years, cannot even believe in an agenda that's in his own ministry, we have a problem. Because this is even about the public out there. If the people implementing the agenda are not really fully behind it, there's a problem. And that's towards the last slide. Some of the lessons learned from the experiences and research of Murray and Christison are the following. Policymakers, in trying to implement innovation to educational practice, need to examine their own specific context have we examined the context of the francophone classroom in Cameroon to determine whether the conditions for innovation, uptake, and diffusion are present? Innovation in English language must be undertaken with a clear understanding of its nature, what are we dealing with, and how the local context impacts multilingualism in Cameroon. How is that embedded into this agenda? the way the innovation will be adopted and, di and diffused. In conclusion, when looking closely at the English Everywhere agenda in Cameroon, it appears that almost none of the key issues, maybe some, I'll go deeper into checking everything again, the key issues regarding educational innovation and change in ELT, because we are dealing with English language here, indicated by Hayes, Murray, and Christison, but many other researchers in the area of ELT, there's a lot of them in the book by Trevor, seem to have been, none of them seem to have been properly understood and addressed properly. Thank you for your kind attention. <coughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Kamdem. It's very hard on a winter afternoon to keep an audience riveted. And you really did. I mean, that was amazing. It felt like five minutes. That was really fantastic. Thank you. Um,
I wonder, uh, let me have a sense of how many questions, comments, uh, fan mail there is, and then we can decide whether to take one question at a time or take a group of questions. Um, okay, so shall we, how would you like to do it? Shall I take I think two and two, take them all and I, then you no, respond? two and three, two, 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 two three. Oh, two, two. two times three. So let me, <laughs> shall I take your, shall I take your colleagues first? Um, so, uh, Akin and Shege, please. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Serafin. It's uh, very riveting <coughs> and uh, well presented. I just want to find out what happens if a child goes to school with the multilingual environment you described, and this child has a language already, and you find that they can't function with either French or English. Is a teacher allowed to use the initiative and carry on education or learning so that this child is helped gradually to a point where they can use the official languages? Because that surely happens in other places in Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, um, thanks to you, Sartin, uh, for producing uh, the presentation. I think we need a lot more of these case studies to see what exactly is happening in Africa. Um, yeah, that question about the transition, the language of transition from the home into the classroom. Uh, are you saying that there is actually no space at all for an African language in Cameroonian you know, primary and pre-primary school education? Um, well, if, so what is the position of the proponents? I am aware that uh, in the past Cameroon have had of which you have done quite a lot of research, bilingual education programs. Uh, well, at least for adults and you know, adult learners. Uh, what is the position of this school of thought, right, which correctly understands that education ought to be delivered in a language that is most comprehensible to the child, right, and that providing a child with a second language to learn is already a problem. What, what, is, the, what, what is the position of, of uh, of that, and also Cameroon being signatory to various international, particularly those of the United Nations, but also the UNESCO, mm -hmm. which relate to uh, linguistic rights of the people, you know, where you know language rights are framed as human rights. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of does the, the do the policymakers tremble any even slightly? With this before implementing this contentious policy, I wonder. Should I take one more? You have yeah, to answer one this. You want one to more. maybe Dr. Madiba or Professor Madiba? I'm not sure. Professor Madiba. Thank you very much, Sarafin. It's, it's a very interesting um, presentation. Um, I just want to ask you a question on, on especially with the local languages. I think that part of the question has been covered by others. You know, I've been to Cameroon for, I think, three times with, uh, um, with, with the with Alexander. I think you know him. Mm -hmm. And we were hosted by Chatterjee. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we came there, we had a program for Pen Masters uh, program, which was um, aimed to be an African program to develop students in master, master's level and doctorate to be able to, be, to develop like orthographs and so on. And my understanding when we were there, was that local languages are not, were not really supported. In fact, government itself was very much uh, uh, not able with the program. The first meeting that we had with the management 
the ministry send a delegate to our meeting to check what we are doing if we are not going to destabilize the country. Wow. And, 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 and my sense was that the local language is, is just lip service to say local language will be promoted, will be. But there was not much that was done in terms of promoting local languages. And also one other problem was orthographies, that most of them were not written, they just spoken. So I think my question really is that how much support that, that this support that we've mentioned here, what has been realized in terms of uh, orthographies or what investment is there? Thank you for the questions. I'll start with uh, Dr. Oyetade. Um, the whole idea of the language of instruction has been central in education and teaching. In terms of how it should be the same language shared by the teacher and the learners, it's totally negated in the case of Cameroon for primary school, for most of this school. Now, you will always have the pocket of, uh, in Bastos, in Yaoundé, where you have a class where the majority of children can actually speak some good French. But we're not talking of that. I'm talking of the rural area because I don't know of any school in a village, let's say, for example, in the West, which we're talking of highly populated areas, so we are dealing with real numbers, where children in a Madumba setting will actually go to school and find that the teacher will start teaching them using the local language. There are experimental cases done by private institutions like the Propelka program, which have a number of schools or in the com area, which, but if you look at the general picture from the Minister of Education, who still sort of control the majority of primary school, roughly speaking, I mean, the numbers are growing and the statistics are, there is no room actually to be able to say that a young Cameroonian speaking a Cameroonian language will actually get into a classroom where they will see that the language they speak fluently, natively, with a high level of proficiency, is actually the language of instruction in the majority of schools. There are experimental schools, there's the Propelka program, there's a credible effort done by some linguists, but I'm talking of the majority of cases, most schools do not provide for local languages, to my knowledge. And that's what I know from five years when I was there. There are some exceptions, but there are so few. When I did my last statistic, we're talking of maybe thousands of primary schools, and you do not yet have up to maybe five to ten percent of this school actually even being in the experimental program where local languages are used. That's the issue of how do teachers struggle then to get across to the children. It's incredible situation. That's why Africa is still, Sub-Saharan Africa, Cameroon is still there, where we have an incredible level of, you know, low achievement of children who are extremely brilliant, but they don't finish primary school. They don't finish because there are all of these issues in terms of their skills and how the school actually doesn't help them develop that. So that's a big debate, but the question can children in some part of Cameroon go to a classroom when they start school at five and find that the language that they speak from childhood, which is the language in the community, is actually the language used as medium of instruction? There may be some pockets, but really, in general, we would say no. Whatever is the reality. That's what I know as a reality from my own research on the field. Jumping to the question of Dr. Githiora, the whole mother tongue in school and the issue of linguistics, it falls within what I've just said. We are having 
uh, uphill battle to actually bring these politicians to even honor their own commitment. The Yom Thien Conference, one of the big, con one of the country in all of this organization is Cameroon. But I've sat in meetings with people from the ministry, even in my days before coming for my PhD, when I was a consultant with a number of organizations, trying to say, let's experiment, at least try using the local languages. The minister didn't want to do that, even though the minister at the time was a linguist was published on multilingualism, it didn't make sense. Because as a politician, he could say, as a politician, the agenda of government is to keep the status quo. The status quo is to maintain the heritage that we have in terms of official. And official bilingualism is a big political issue at the end of the day, because that shows that we are unitary and there's a lot of debate there. So again, things are changing, but the politicians in Cameroon, really, they are the same, at least in their mind. We do not yet have a new generation of people thinking very differently because it's a very, it's a very group. So there, there's a problem that we have a lot of experts saying things like my colleague and friend who is in the ministry, but they are not being listened to because those who make decisions tend to discard all of what empirical evidence is saying. So there's this problem. And going back to the question about local language, it falls in the same line. There's incredible research that has been done to prove. There's even something else. The fact that you do not need to, I know this is going to be very contentious, and I've been all over the world, and I've said this again. In the case of Cameroon, the majority of Cameroonian language, that is those language that have been standardized with, an, with a writing system, they will help you cover 80% of the whole population. So I understand, we have 286. We have at least orthography for at least 100. That's clear. Those 100, luckily, or because the linguist behind it, like Tadadjo, sort of thought about doing what we call a certain diversity, those 100 can actually cover the majority of the population if you try to use them for education. So the rest of the language with no writing system will really just you know, come along. But if you take the writing system of the 100 or plus Cameroonian language and you try to use that for education in the first years, that actually was always for just starting education using the local language, then transiting to the... You will actually cover the majority of the population. So the whole thing that, oh, you have 286 language, the majority don't have writing system. How, no, no, it's not true. It's a fallacy. The languages that have a right, that can be used for literacy, that have some form of didactic material, basic premise, we have enough to cover the majority of the population in rural area. And this is extremely important because then we are not trapped by the numbers. So that's one problem. So we have the resources in terms of intellectual resources. The research is there. We have many experts. The political will is the problem in the case of Cameroon. That's clear. And I've said this and I've written it somewhere else. And this is clearly documented that at some point, the English Everywhere agenda is one of these sort of unexpected decisions that have come true in the evolution of education in Cameroon that show us that politicians will make decisions even against the advice of their own sort of technical aspect within the ministry. So this is a very serious problem. It is not that we don't know what's happening. The political will in terms of language in Africa is the biggest problem. In the case of Cameroon, to my knowledge, it is not that Cameroonians are not aware that we are not capable of actually having 
you know, bilingual systems, especially for basic education, just helping children not really become, but let me take more questions, sorry. Can I just ask what time we need to give up the room? Well, what time does the seminar normally finish? Till seven. Okay, yeah. So we have the room for another half hour or so. Uh, so I'm Harry. sorry, I don't know your Harry, name. Harry, Harry. Harry, please. Yes. And then uh, Quadro, and I can't remember, there was another. Shall we do the Eastern Block first? And I don't know your name. Zaida. Zaida. So one, two, three. Are you happy with that? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Just some random comments. I'm not sure I have a question. Because I come from Cameroon. And I've been a teacher trainer. I became a teacher trainer in the, in the ages, mm -hmm. teaching them English and how to teach English mm -hmm. in the far north, in Kaeli, in 1996. So before 2000, there was English in teacher training college. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the ministry as national pedagogic inspector for bilingual education from 2002 till 2009. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite aware of what uh, was happening, and I'm very familiar with I'll find a copy of that. I'm going to come on. And I'm sure you'll correct a lot of the things that are not correct here. They are, very, they are correct. They are very accurate. <laughs> oh. So I was very much involved in that. And even, even in 1995, when I was still training, I, I did attend a forum on education that led to the 1998 law. Now, the law says, the 1998 law you cited says specifically about bilingual education, that the state shall promote bilingualism as a factor of national unity and integrity. There is no linguistic attachment to bilingualism in the law. It is entirely a political commitment to promote it for national unity and integration. Ayafo, mm -hmm. I think, is the one, a uh, Cameroonian um, author says in something published in the early 2000s, that ethnicity, problems of ethnicity in Cameroon exist at the macro level. What he meant was that it is more likely that Cameroon can go to war because some people are Anglophones and others are Francophone than they would go to war because some people are Bamenikes or Agems or that. And if you tell me I'm, I am Agem, if you call me Agem, that's fine. If you say Anglophone, it's an insult. And it's the same thing Francophones. So the political identity of Cameroon has been very much attached to English and French. In so many, it's not as straightforward, not as easy as we see. Politicians definitely see. I, I resigned from the ministry. I had to, I, I gave up because working with bilingualism means working with politicians and having to cope with a lot of things. So I gave up. As a linguist, I gave up. But we have to recognize that the the identity of the Cameroonian is so deeply rooted in these two languages, and dismantling that would also go would also come with political issues. For example, in the early 90s, with the beginning of the first, with the launching of the first um, opposition party, the STF, mm -hmm. which was based in Bamenda, the English-speaking part, tensions started arising, and the whole issue was. Uh, Anglophones want to go away. The SCNC and all those things came from nowhere, and Anglophones were asking to break off. Now, the quick fix was well, maybe because people don't understand each other. If we implement bilingual education, people would start learning English and French. In fact, it is not just the English everywhere policy, 
there's also a French everywhere policy <laughs> in, in English-speaking parts. So exactly everything Seraphine said is what's happening in the French-speaking part. And my role was to take care of English in the French medium parts of Cameroon, exactly what he's talking about. So those are issues that li that linguists, we, we as linguists, we have a good idea about the cognitive values of mother tongue. But there are sociolinguistic, there are sociopolitical issues that politicians see and that we don't see. And that is why their interpretation of the education and language, the UNESCO policies, are deeply rooted in those languages that are capable of breaking Cameroon. And that's English and French. That's something, a perspective we might have to think about. Not perfectly right, but quite important. Thank you very much. Before I move on to the next question, I just want to underline this moment because it's a moment that doesn't come in many careers where one gives a seminar and there's someone in the audience who not only says what you're saying is important, but I know what you're saying and what you're saying is correct. It yeah. is, I, I just want everyone in the room to witness this moment. It's a fantastic Thank you. moment. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It doesn't happen to all of us. <laughs> um. Maybe you're just too kind to me. <laughs> no, 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 you're spot on. Absolutely. I think I have uh, Kwajo and Zaida first. Exactly. Yeah. Zaida then we go back yeah, to Edith. Kwajo? Yeah, Oga Kwajo. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed your um, presentation. I just have two comments. One is that those people that decided at the end um, who were talking about the context language and the essential factors which are there in a, you know, in a kind of case where you want to apply um, bilingualism or multilingualism. I think that your own presentation and the research is much more profound. Those comments are pretty banal and your paper will be stronger, I don't be stronger if you draw your own conclusions yeah. from what you read. Those yeah. points by those authors who cite, you cited at the end are kind of pretty banal and you don't really yeah. add much and actually diminish the power of your argument. Yeah. My other thing is that um, it's, it, it would seem to me, or do you find that there's any kind of disjuncture between this whole you know, government decree, let's teach English or French, and then the fact that in terms of, as you described, 250 languages, 80% of which, the population of which speak that, in terms of the very agenda that the politicians want to prosecute, which is development, that they are actually contributing very largely to the alienation of the people totally, mm -hmm. entirely. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. basically what they are doing is just something which is a relic of a new, a new colonial legacy, mm -hmm. which they've not been able to think through yeah. properly to undo. Yeah. You know, which is to say that, I mean, the English and the French and the Portuguese and the Spanish and the da da da, they've all come to stay. But also, part of the reason why we have all the problems that we have in every single part of the continent is that our development is too one elitist because only a few people have access to the English and the French or whatever, and then the power that comes with it through education, and then the rest of the people that you're trying to talk to in terms of whatever you want to develop, don't really get you and understand you because in their daily lives, 99.9% .9 of their daily lives, they're talking whatever, homala, in terms of your, you know, um, um, all those languages that you, you, know, you introduce to the course. So I think that there's a fundamental problem there, and I wondered what your own ideological perspective was on that. So for it seems to me that the whole presentation actually shows that our, our whole present modern development in terms of borrowing from the West or whatever, whatever is topsy-turvy, totally, entirely. Okay. What's your reaction to that? Thank you. I'll, I'll react to that, Zaida. Um, I'm really glad that I came to this one as well as the other one because it's now so much clearer in my head. Um, but it makes me think of Uganda, and Uganda is nothing like the same linguistic um, diversity that Cameroon has, but a 
lot of, well, some of the reasons why Uganda um, hasn't been able to really implement um, local language teaching in education is because of the conditionalities that come with aid. Lots of um, publishers say, I don't know how they get to governments here, but they get to them and say, look, we want to sell all our textbooks to Uganda, to Africa, and then that gets written into aid um, deals. Um, and I was just wondering, was there something specific that happened around the 1990s that meant that this was kind of decreed with no consultation, no kind of um, feedback from teachers at all, or had, had that been happening, or is that happening? Okay, thank you. I, I'll I thank Harry for what he's contributed. I'll go back to him, absolutely. He's going to be one of the key people to help me because I'm working with a colleague back in the ministry on this. That's why the information is very close to what he has said. But he has answered, just going back to what Zaida said, that from the 90s, and I was, uh, you know, finishing my master's in the early 90s, 93, and even when I was at uni, I remember we were one of those students who were arrested, you know, dragging, dragging into. So the political sort of paranoia about the English or Anglophone cessation may have led to some of these kinds of decisions. So what Harry is saying is absolutely true, that the, 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 the political agendas are blind to local realities. And I think we need to also be very pessimistic about but we need to also be upset because in some countries, and the recent case on, and I'll go back to what uh, Oga Kwadu was asking, uh, 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 the, the case that some politicians are not all blind. The current Minister of Education in Ghana is trying to push the reflection towards actually removing English as the medium of instruction, especially, I think, in the primary, yeah. Yeah. which is, this is a university professor, so she's a politician, but not all politicians are totally blind to the reality. And this is not the first time there are other politicians who are trying to think along the line. I'm not talking of linguists. Linguists all agree on everything. Professor Alexander <laughs> did it because we know the reality and it is our job to at least, you know, try to stick to the facts. There's nobody who is going, the, the, the only agreement I have with Harry is that Harry as a linguist, as an academic, knows this reality. He doesn't have some agenda to say that, oh, maybe lang local language are going to disrupt, because we know from evidence that it doesn't do that. It doesn't. So what I'm trying to just answer quickly is that we, we, it is important that we understand and accept that politicians use the political power for their own sort of interests and that they are not there necessarily to listen to what the local reality are. And to go back quickly so that we can have more questions, to, to, to um, Dr. Ousenyame, I am going to go back to the ideological issues. Now, the other uh, paper that I extracted that slide, it's on a conference and a collection to which I'm contributing on post-colonial ideology. Now, the whole idea is that the ideologies of language and language policies in Africa are inherited from colonial times. My position in my paper is that there are local promotional constituencies who are the elite, who actually are not blind, but they want to promote European languages to the detriment of local language because they have vested interest in terms of their power systems. 
In other words, there is absolutely no reason that a minister in Ghana who is an academic and a university professor can see that we can at least incorporate the local language. And they didn't say we are going to do it tomorrow. She said we start thinking about what are the best ways. It's happening all over the world. Laos, I've seen information about what's happening in Laos. Laos wants to think about even if we are going to teach English, can we first look how that will work with the local system. So they are trying to ask the whole world to come and do the research, and they will pay, and this is the ministry. They are paying so that there's research, so that at least some of the points that I'm making actually are applied, that we look, okay, we want English, we want English, but how do we do it gradually? So what I'm trying to say is that the local elites, those who get political power, they actually turn against the interest of the community that they are supposed to serve. Now, the problem that you've raised is extremely true and important. That is, are they aware that by creating an education system that doesn't work for the majority, they are actually creating you know, more problems in terms of their legacy to the future? But then we know the same way they treat the resources on the continent is exactly what they do with our cultural resources also. The fact that they can take all the resources of the country, Cameroon, Nigeria, wherever in sub-Saharan Africa, and then they don't use it to promote and develop for the future generation. It's the same thing that they do to cultural resources. Local languages, local environment, the fauna, the flora, and the whole diversity that we have culturally are treated the same way that politicians treat the resources. So yes, there's a massive disjuncture between politicians and their agenda and reality. And people should stop only seeing the hand of the West in all of this. There's part of it, but actually the hand of local politicians is as heavy and maybe heavier in many cases in terms of this disjunction. So, but that's, so I'm going to write something on ideology and the fact that there, is, there are ideological and what are called power networks that are local that may actually be more dangerous in terms of all of this cultural and linguistic sort of dynamics than even what we think is just, you know, the big corporations out there. Sorry, I want to take more questions. Sorry. Yeah. You know, also just to, to speak, abuse my position from the chair, um, money masquerading as knowledge or yeah. funding, pretending yeah. that it's leading a knowledge agenda when in fact it's leading a financial, or as you say, a, a funders or a sponsor. Yeah, can I just give an okay. example? Between uh, 1998 and 2008, there were 12 pedagogic changes in the Ministry of Basic Education in Cameroon. All of them were funded by international organizations, some of them through UNESCO and, and, and uh, UNESCO and UNICEF. So, so UNESCO, is not, UNESCO is not unaware of the linguistic problems in Cameroon. They are very much aware. Yeah, let's take the next set of questions, starting with it. Yes. Yes, sorry. and then, sorry, I don't know any names. One and two. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, ask you um, your position or how you see the question of pidgin, because I was, when, as you know, I was there uh, in 2009 and I was mm -hmm. doing ethnographies in primary schools mm -hmm. in the Anglophone part and the Francophone part. And what I observed there was that the kids were speaking pidgin and the teachers between them spoke pidgin and they spoke English only when they had to teach. And so that the amount of input 
was actually very, uh, very thin in, in English anyway, and um, it was less marked in, the, in the, the schools in the Francophone part, but I had the impression that not only uh, the government was paying lip service in relation to the mother tongues, uh, but also was um, that in, in the context of the institution of the schools, the teachers considered uh, the pidgin and the mother tongues as barriers to learning full stop. Yeah. And that they were, you know, they were beating the kids if they said a word in their mother tongue or in pidgin. Mm. Uh, really, when I, when I went beating, I mean beating. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, I, it seems to me that in fact, pidgin in Cameroon is a national language in waiting. It's because it's political. It, if if uh, there was a serious thinking, the, the language of the future is going to be pidgin. So you don't, don't you, well, I don't know what you think about that, but mm. don't you underestimate the strength of pidgin as a pot potential national language? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably. Mm -hmm. Number two and number three. Um, you talked about um, the people you interviewed in the ministry and you didn't mention their names. Are they anonymous? <laughs> and if they're anonymous, would there be like serious consequences for talking to you? Is this like dangerous research? Um, yes, do I have another question? Yes, I think there's one. <laughs> 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 generated. I have a comment and a question. My comment is I've done a lot of work in East and Central Africa and so many of the things, whether they're ideological, political, socio-economic, socio-linguistic, etc., pertain also in that part of the world. And in fact in Tanzania, if you take that as a case, English everywhere has been a disaster. For example, 2012-2013, of the secondary school children who sat the equivalent of O-level GCSE scored zero in their national exams. So that's just, it has been a disaster, right? My, my question is this, we know that actually when we talk about teaching a language, whether it's Kiswahili, English or French, there's a difference between teaching the language as a subject and teaching the language as a medium of instruction for school teaching but, and for learning. And I just wondered whether um, in, in, in the work that I've done and so on, that is really not a, a concept that has been terribly well understood or unpicked in parts of the world where I've, where I've worked. And I was just wondering whether that was the same in the Cameroon or whether there was an awareness of the differences between the language and the vehicle for learning. Mm. Okay, I'll go back to start with Edith's question. There is no doubt in my mind, especially now that I'm doing a lot of my research in World Englishes, which is one of the areas where I expanded my uh, specialism from my PhD, which was on um, multilingual education and literacy. In Again, the debate is even that we have historical evidence. When Papua New Guinea was evolving, Talk Pisin was treated like anything worse than th today is the official language and it's written you can do your education everything in Talk Pisin. Okay, this is we have historical evidence. Fifty to sixty years ago, 
if you told somebody in Nigeria that you have millions having pidgin or creole Nigerian as their first language people will say no you are joking that's impossible English is going to take over but that's the language that is actually most spoken as if you combine L1 speakers and L2 it's above a million that's documented that is if you take people in Nigeria who can function that is really not just having who can actually have like a conversation in Nigerian pidgin I think Dr. Oetade will confirm that you have reached there's no other language in Nigeria where you actually have people who can but that's a fact also Sierra Leone is the other example of and this again for Nigerian pidgin English and this is extremely important and Creole are what we call the sister varieties say broader variety but this is of what is known as west african pidgin englishes yeah. so actually i understand my friend from sierra leone even though we've never because we speak actually the same value of a language that's very obvious and i discovered it only when i came to uk that you know he was speaking i said but what, what are you saying he said what but that's exactly the same thing that i speak so there's this incredible potential that children are going to acquire pidgin more and more and that is going to develop like it's done in all over parts of the world and then again the problem of the politicians and the people but also there's an important thing that there's nothing saying that all politicians are going to always have these agendas because things may change for the better but it is very important that we are aware that the reality of Cameroonian pidgin English that there are more and more you know children acquire it's no longer the language of the anglophones as people thought a lot of people who speak pidgin have never been to the Anglophone area. It's just that is the common language that we have, and you know things have changed. So that's yes, pidgin has an incredible potential, and it's not a barrier to learning, and that's the same way that the monitor is not. So, and um, the question about um, it's yes, this friend, he said for now he will not put his name forward because he was part of this and he's still working in the ministry. So he has said clearly that they didn't listen to us and they just decided to go ahead with this without even answering the question, who actually will be teaching? Now, those who were doing it, even somebody like Harry who had to teach this, there's a very different thing than having a chance to even question the content. So you are told that, oh, you are teaching in the ENIAC, you must teach English now. Oh, you speak English. Oh, you have a degree in English. Just go and do it. So the problem is not about if people who are involved in the English Everywhere agenda are aware. It's if this is working the way it's been implemented. So his problem being in the ministry is that we do not agree the way it is. So even if we have to teach English, if we have to promote English, it needs to be done in a way that is working. When I hear about children who have zero in their test in other countries, this is exactly something that we could know about, that we did know about, and that we told. So yes, there is a danger for those who are still in the ministry if they are clearly, openly uh, saying that this was a disaster made to fail. So that's that aspect is true. So I'll be using more of the public sources, the official thing from the ministry. And the last question, um, was got, it was about. It was about my, my question was about awareness of the different roles in yeah. teaching, either as a language, as a subject, or as a vehicle for school learning. Yes, in the case of the English Everywhere Agenda, as I have framed it, or as I'm, I'm framing it in this research, this is even just English 
as a subject. This is just in the Francophone area. If we go back to the cases of English as a language of instruction, then that's a totally different kind of one. So this is just the specific case of those areas where teachers are expected to teach English as a subject in the first for the children. And these teachers, they have not been trained. There's not enough didactic material. And again, how many teachers come out of the years compared to the number of teachers who must all implement the ministerial decree. So that's the problem. The problem is this sort of implementational challenges. This is only in the frame, my framing of English Everywhere agenda is even just English as a subject. Just as a subject in places where you do not have much of it. I think we can take a series of questions again before. Yes. yes. Is there, is there another question after that? Yes. One? So, first, at the back. Thank you so much for the presentation. I have a question slightly really different to the, the ones that we've had. I have a question about the uh, social structure of Cameroonian society. In, and what is the perspective when we look at, because my knowledge of uh, the area is much I would like to ask whether there is a link or how to maybe rephrase it. We know when children go to school and they are taught in other language, the mother tongue is setting them for that's, that's, that's obvious and, and in the long run that's happen that happens to the whole country, that the country does not you know, succeed as it could in a you know, world kind of context. In many cases like, I don't know, Pakistan or India, we had this example before. So my question is, we talk about uh, the government, we talk about uh, um, the politici politicians being responsible for that, but because this is a society and the politicians are people and the government is people, because sometimes what happens is that there is a social class or social group that kind of protects the rights, protects the power, so they do not let other people take over. So. Is that a case? Could you see that as a potential case happening in Cameroon, that something is happening beyond that day? Who are they, those people who are not happy to let those kids go to school and just learn? Because that's setting them for failure, and we know that. Mm. So it, it may be, from the ethical point of view, it's a dangerous question, if you could answer. But uh, who are they? OK. Um, two more shall questions. We, uh, shall we have... Someone Two more questions. And then Harry yeah. last? Yeah. You want Harry to have the last question? Yeah. Um, if, yeah, because we are towards the end. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Can, can I ask, are parents paying for the education of their children? Um, or is it, um, is it a public service for free? And if the parents are paying, are they complaining? My child isn't learning anything. Mm, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, Harry wants to make a comment. Yeah, my, my comment was related to the, the English as medium of instruction. I'm actually finishing up a, a draft of a paper for comparative education, and my my, my study was uh, on English medium instruction for francophone children, because with the new law and the the, the, the decree uh, that uh, Seraphim pointed out, lots of forms of bilingual education have started in Cameroon. So there is the French in English medium primary schools and English in French medium primary schools. So I'm talking about. But we've had all sorts of hybrids of bilingual education. And one form is 
children from French-speaking families going to school, to English medium schools. In Yaoundé, the national capital, for example, at the moment, 87% of the children who go to an English medium school actually come from homes where French is the common language spoken in addition to native languages. So it is even more serious. Now the population is rising, but the challenges added to the, those challenges is raised are just going on and on and, and, and on. So yes, there is some, there, there is that, that trend in itself. And what I noticed was that the elite, the very rich, I spoke to a parent, for example, who's very capable of sponsoring his child in a private school, pays for a private teacher. And he told me, look, my child is politically francophone because she comes from the north of Cameroon. Now, if she, she's good in biology and the sciences, so I want her to be a medical doctor. For her to, if she's competing with other francophones to get into one of the faculties of medicine, regional balance, which is an unwritten law in Cameroon. We try to balance things so that people from different parts fit in. She might be knocked off by someone else from the north. But if she competes as an Anglophone, there are not many Anglophones from the north, so she'll get the job. So from political economy, yes. But the poorer parents, I spoke to parents in very rural parts, I've met this woman who said, oh, I'm doing everything for my child, and she's fantastic in English. But when I interviewed these children in friendship groups, they couldn't even speak good French. Not even good French. So the child was not as fantastic as the parents thought he was, because the parents don't even understand English. And if they don't understand the language of the school, how are they going to know that whether the children are doing well? Because the child comes back, says a few words in English, and mom says, oh, that's an Anglophone. The child is doing well. And so the, the gap is widening and widening. Yeah. So we have sort of 30 seconds for Seraphine to wrap. I, I, I quickly thank you for, being, for waiting, and then we'll just finish now because we need to round up things. Um, the social structure of communion society, the powers, um, the elites that are there clearly seems to protect and preserve power <laughs> at all costs. What we are talking about is an education system that is failing the majority. So the elite can reproduce itself forever <laughs> as they've done since the colonial times. Yeah. So there's the problem that, yes, there is unequal balance of power, and education, allocation of resources, use of the military or police. We cannot refuse. They are connected. And the elite certainly is aware because I never understood why a minister at the time when I was a consultant for UNICEF on a specific project, who is a linguist himself, refused to listen to any discourse on local languages. Why? Because he had a vested interest with the La Francophonie project, which is about the promotion of French. That's a clear case. So it's not about him not being aware, but it was that. And then about parents paying, yes, they do pay incredible amount to get their children, even though officially Cameroon has universal education, but the complex picture of parents really not having it all free is not really there. In some public schools, you are not officially supposed to pay fees, but there are always collateral charges. But a lot of the parents, even in rural areas, are struggling to send their children to private school because the quality there is far better. And public school, the quality, because of numbers, 
is not that teacher, but in a room that was planned for 30, you have almost sometimes more than 100. So that's a big challenge. So private school will not have that. So then I will stop here and let uh, give a chance to Kali to round up. And then, you know, I thank you all again. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you very much.